Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. I want to remind you um, where we've been. In chapter 8, so we have we have looked all at Hannah. We know what she was like, the mother of Samuel. Amazing. Story of absolute hope. And we looked at Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. We looked at the high priest and his corrupt sons. We looked at all that Samuel became. He was the transitional figure between the time of the judges and the monarchy. For those of you who, who are new, the time of the judges, the book of the judges describes a cycle that went on for 400 years. And basically, as you're reading the book of judges, you can see the cycle taking place. Once you know the cycle, you'll notice it when you study the book. Because it'll say, and once again, the Israelites began to worship the gods of the other people, or they were oppressed. So it looks like this. Remember, they have married God at Sinai. They have entered into a relational covenant, a, a, a conditional covenant, like a marriage covenant with God. They have entered that at Sinai. They have come in to take their land, and this is what the cycle starts to look like. They began to worship the gods of the other people. And remember, they were supposed to clear the land of the people and set up their nation and their lifestyle and their worship in that land so that when the whole nation came through, why? Why am I saying the whole nation or all the nations would go through that land? What is in that land? The greatest trade route in all the world. It is called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And it literally was a trade route north to south that went along the Mediterranean Sea through the narrow strip of Israel. And it connected all of Egypt with all of the land of Mesopotamia. And so God did not put his people in some isolated place. He gave them the inheritance of a land that literally was the crossroads of life. And he wanted his people set up there as a testimony to him. He wanted them to free the land of its inhabitants so they could stand alone as a testimony. But instead, they did not free the land. Remember, they settled amongst the other people. Because of that, there was constant fighting over territory. And because of that, they began, instead of to influence the world, the world began to influence them. And they got sucked into the other religions. So the cycle looks like this. They began to worship the gods of the other people. They cheated on God. And God would allow a nation to come up and oppress them. The Midianites, Canaanites, Perizzites, what? Mosquito bites, it doesn't matter. Okay, y'all know my jokes now, not funny. And God would raise up a judge, Ehud, Gideon, Samson, Deborah, and he would use that judge to free his people. And as long as that judge was reigning and instituting only Jehovah worship, the people would obey and they would live in a time of peace. But the minute the leader died, the minute they did not have that strong leader, they would be sucked right back in to worshiping the gods of the other people. At the end of the book of Judges, it is described as everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it's a hot mess. It went on for 400 years. Samuel is the last judge in the cycle. And we're about to see why, what happened, what got us from the time of the judges to the time of the monarchy or the kings. So last week we looked at Samuel and how he was raised up by God. He became the transitional figure in that he was a priest because of his mother's vow and the stamp of approval of Eli, the high priest. He was also a prophet because God spoke to him and he gave the word to the people and everything he said was true. The scripture says that none of his words fell to the ground. And he was also the last judge. And when we ended up with, uh, with his story, basically we find out that through his leadership, he literally wiped the Philistines back out of the land. He cleansed the land of the Philistines and the Israelites took over the five cities that were the Philistine cities along the Mediterranean. And so basically for his lifetime, he ruled in the land of Israel as their judge. He made the circuit. He made himself known. He was a strong leader. But somewhere along the way, right, things began to change because he got what? Old. And so he started to get old. And what he did is it says that he appointed his sons as judges. 
And if you know anything about the judges, that should have made you go, hmm, that's really interesting because the, a judge is someone that was chosen by God for a specific time, for a specific event of basically freeing his people from a certain enemy. God was the king. The judge was the leader chosen by God underneath him for a certain time and event, and he was to rule. It was not a position of power to be passed down to sons. That sounds more like what? A king. Okay. So we kind of analyzed that last week and we talked about the fact, okay, well, maybe he was delegating because the job was too big. Is there delegation in the Old Testament? There is. Because in the wilderness, if you remember, Moses was trying to adjudicate all the problems of the Israelites and his father-in-law, Jesse, shows up and says, dude, you can't do all this. And you're not even doing a great job because no one person can do all this. So you need to choose honorable men who tell the truth, who do not receive a bribe, do not have go after dishonest gain, and you need to delegate and let them rule. So if Samuel was doing that, man, he didn't pick well. Because what did it say about his sons? They were all the opposite of what I just said. And so in some sense, you see this idea that maybe Samuel is operating almost more like a king in the sense that he elected his sons to kind of be come after him as judges and take over that leadership. But with all that said, he gave his life and he was a great leader in the land of Israel. And in chapter eight, he got the biggest slap in the face you can ever have because the elders came to him and said, basically, you are old. Thanks for that. Your sons are not like you, and we want a king, a king. That's what they wanted. Um, he was absolutely insulted. He took it personal. We know he did because God told him not to, which means what? He did. That's why the Lord brought it up to him. And so it was a big slap in the face that they wanted a king. But the problem is when we read the Old Testament, and if you've been in church a really long time, you have heard certain stories taught certain ways. And so I want to encourage you as adults to get your face back in the word of God. And as an adult, read the scripture for yourself and put yourself in that place. Because if I'm being honest, right, you hear sermons all the time. Oh, they asked for a king. They didn't trust God. They were unfaithful. Can't believe they did such a horrible thing. Spit in the face of God and ask for a king. That's all I ever got. But stop for a minute and wonder to yourself, why? And wonder to yourself, oh, okay, they're bad. I'm good. I'm reading this. I would never do such a thing. Really? So what do they know? Well, I'm going to tell you what they know. We're going to find out. The Philistines, they're coming back in the land. We're going to see that in this story. Because now, all of a sudden, the very one that has been eradicated out of the land, we're going to see have garrisons in a lot of different areas, and they have moved back in. And not only that, the Ammonites are on the border. They're east of the Jordan River. We're going to find out what they're doing. So if you're the elder... And you're looking back over the history of your nation. What are you seeing? When we don't have a strong male leader, we tend to have anarchy and idolatry and we get our butts handed to us by another nation and we end up oppressed. So we can already see it coming. And when we look at the leader we have, he is stinking old. And so it won't be long before he kicks the bucket. And if we look beyond him to the secondary leaders, they're nothing like Samuel. And so the deal is, yes, they weren't being faithful and they weren't trusting God because God had never let them down. None of this had taken God by surprise. Was he able to bring up a leader? Of course. And why is the enemy coming in? What are they doing? They're falling away from God and not trusting. We see all that, but it's easy to look at that and say, I would never do that. But I'm going to be honest with you. If I was on the elder board there, I probably would be asking the same question. We need to prepare. We need a leader. This is what we're like. We want a king. And so he is so upset about it, right? Because it's a slap in the face. When we get to chapter nine, that is when we begin to see that God is going to give them a king. And what is his name? Saul. So I didn't cover chapter 13 last time because I'm going to cover it in Saul. 
when I look at Saul, okay? So you read chapter nine. So let's actually talk about this story, all right? So Saul was the son of Kish. I love what the message says. It says that he had a stalwart character, okay? So in other words, Saul's dad was a very honorable man. They were from a small tribe. So you can picture this very honorable man with a great reputation who, by the way, had great wealth. And he was from a rural community, a small town. Everybody knew him. And on top of all that, this fine man had one fine boy. He was handsome, the Bible says. Uh, It says that there was not another one like him in the land. And he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. And that stature, listen, it got attention. Because anytime you see the Israelites fight an enemy, what are they always talking about? Giants, stature. And so for them, Saul was their giant in the land. In other words, you have, I mean, you can picture this in a movie. You have this guy that everybody knows that goes into the cafe every morning. He's a rancher. He's doing well. He has integrity. He is honorable. And he has one fine all-American boy that is a stud. He is handsome. He is nice. He seems to be obedient. He has every physical quality every dad would want in a son. Are you picturing it? And so the situation is this. We got some lost donkeys. Which makes me laugh because in my mind, I'm wondering just a little bit how the donkeys got lost because I had a young boy and I had young people in my house and I also was one. And see, these are the silly little questions that I want to know when I get to heaven. I want to know how did the donkeys get out and was it because someone didn't shut the gate? Because my whole life, what do you hear? What do you tell your kids? Could you turn out a light? Can you shut a door? Do you live in a barn? I mean, so you wonder, right? But either way, he decides this is an opportunity for his son to go out and do something. To go out and he gives him a job to do. He is going away from home and he is going to go explore and he is going to go find those donkeys. But he's not going alone. He sends with him a servant. All right, which is really important because he is a beloved son. He is highly favored and cared for. He is not going to send his son out alone. He sends him out with an experienced servant who knows the land, who would probably train Saul along the way. And so he is protected. Also, why does he need protection? What is in the land? There are enemies in the land. It's not such a peaceful time right now. And so they end up going basically on a journey of about three days. They go into all of the surrounding areas to look for the donkeys. I think it's interesting that it was Saul who eventually after the three days says what? Enough's enough. All right. He is the one that finally says enough of this. Let's go back. Because to be honest, we've been out here for so long, my dad's not going to care about the donkeys. He's going to be worried about what? Me. What does he know? He knows he's valued. He's cared about. His dad is going to worry about him. But I do find it funny that it is the son who gives up so early to go find the donkeys. Because what does the servant do? He says, not so fast. All right, so in summer, you've got a respected father from a small town community who is wealthy, who has a handsome son, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you think Saul was praised much? Yeah. Do you think his dad was so proud of him? The family was so proud of him. He went into the cafe in the mornings, goes, Saul, we saw that touchdown on Friday, man. You rock. You are awesome. Nobody could stop you. You're the best one around. Oh, my goodness. He got all kinds of praise and attention because he was the prized son. He was uh, handsome. He was built. He had everything physical any boy would want. I find it interesting when you compare him to David, right? Uh, Saul goes out. He has a servant's escort who says, first off, his family's doing well because they have a servant that is free that could go on this trip to look for the donkeys. So here's Saul. He goes out with the servant. Can I tell you, David was the servant because a servant's job is to be the shepherd. If you don't have a servant, guess who gets that job? The youngest brother. 
the lowest man on the totem pole. I mean, honest to goodness. And not only that, Saul knew he was valued. David, if you would have asked him about his value, he'd be like, dude, someone came to anoint a king and my dad took every other brother and lined up up in a row and didn't give me one little thought. I mean, they had to ask him if there was another person in the family. All right, send me on a trip with a servant. Are you kidding? I was the servant. I didn't have any value. I mean, we're talking about two completely different backgrounds here. And I do think it's interesting that the servant is the one who wanted to continue to find the donkeys. Why do you think that is? Do you see how I stop often? I don't just read the story. Like, honestly, Saul's the son. He's over it. Uh, The servant wants to keep looking. He's intense wanting to find those donkeys. Why? Because if you're a servant, you care about a donkey. Because the donkey is the work truck of the farm. And if you don't have that, guess who is going to be the work truck of the farm? It's not the son. It is the servant. So he knows the value in this donkey. Not only that, he is still working, right, to have the favor of who? The master, right, of Kish. He wants to earn Kish's respect. When Kish gives him a job, he wants to get it done. He wants to come back and do that. And so he is still trying to earn, right, the favor and the respect, show respect to Kish. Saul's not that worried about it. Why? He's the son. Do you not see that? He's valued. He's the son. Nepotism can be a weird thing, especially in a business, right? Because sometimes you expect more out of somebody uh, that is not related than you let people of relation get away with right? And so you don't see this intense need to go find this donkey out of Saul, but you do see it out of the servant. So they go and and they're going to meet Samuel, okay? Don't you find it interesting that it is the servant who knows about Samuel and not Saul? Why would that be? If you were sitting there pondering this, why would the servant know more about Saul? Think about it. I mean, Samuel, how do you not know about Samuel? He is the priest, all right? So that tells me, are they not going to the sacrifices as a family? Have they not been in the habit of going to the celebrations and the offerings? Because how do you do that and not know who Samuel is? Do you never talk about spiritual things at the table? Do you not ever talk about politics? Because it wasn't too lately that the news came out, the 411, that the elders of the land, which there would have been an elder in Benjamin who would have been on that committee. And what did they ask for? A king. You don't think the buzz is out? How did Saul not know Samuel? And so the servant does, and the fact that, well, maybe the servant needed more spiritual things. Maybe the servant was interested. Maybe he sought God more. Maybe he needed to. Why? Oppression, pain, suffering, hardship sometimes draws us more to the Lord. Not to mention, could it be a simple fact that he's older? And now that Samuel is old, what has happened to his popularity? It's waned. So maybe that's the excuse or maybe that's the reason that this younger man did not really know about Samuel is because maybe he wasn't such a political figure anymore. Maybe he wasn't such a demonstrative leader. And maybe that's why the enemy has crept back in is that, you know, I mean, he's old. He's not traveling around. He's not going to battles. And so you, you sit and wonder all of these things. I do love what the message says. It says, um, the servant said about Samuel, he carries a lot of weight around here. Like, he's a big deal. I want you to know that who we're about to go see, he's a big deal. And what he says absolutely comes true. Um, And so they go. I think it's funny that that, um, the servant knows about Samuel, but yet Saul knows etiquette. Because what did you notice? 
The servant wants to go see, but Saul goes, wait a minute. Etiquette says we should show up with a gift. So listen, this boy is trained. All right, he knows. He knows proper etiquette. He doesn't know Samuel, but he knows he better show up. And then I also find it interesting that the servant's the one with the silver coin. I'll let you study that. There were certain things used uh, that you would use a silver coin for. It's just interesting to me. And I want you to learn to pick up on little things and go out on rabbit trails and study because it is so much fun. But anyway, they run into girls. Does that not make you laugh? So they're going in and they run into a group of girls who, by the way, are coming out of the city because the water supply is always outside the city walls, usually, unless it is battle time. And you will see in some cities that they actually rebuild the wall to come out around the water so that the enemy can't get to their water supply. And so actually they're coming outside to the wells. And what do you think gets their attention? A hot guy. Leave it to a young woman up front to get that right. Saul. Y'all, Casanova is walking up, okay? They, he gets their attention. If he speaks to them, they're going to sit there and talk to him as long as he wants to talk. I mean, come on. I have a son. He, I think he's beautiful, all right? And so I've seen this in action. You go in a restaurant, whoo, right? I have seen little waitresses leave their number on the bill. And you're like, oh, please, you know, like whatever, just sit down. And so they run into these girls and they ask them about Samuel. And what do they say? Oh yeah, he's in there, but you better stink and hurry up because he is in here to make a sacrifice and um, he is on his way right now. So if you hurry, you might catch him. But I'm telling you right now, you better hurry because everybody is up there waiting and they can't eat till he gets there. I don't know if your family's like my family, but if you're sitting around Thanksgiving and one person is running late, what's everybody like? The flip, they better hurry up. What in oh, they're always late. I'm starving to death. Those mashed potatoes are calling my name. And so here they are. He's on his way. They walk in, and when they do, he runs flat in to Samuel. Did you notice that they were doing a lot of climbing? In the story, they went up, they climbed up, they went up. Do you know why that is? Because all the sacrifices were on high places. All right, and so they would go. So Zuf was a very high place, and they would go up to the high places. That's also where the pagan nations would uh, offer their offerings, are on the high places. So all through the Old Testament, when God told them to go knock down the high places, he was saying, go up to these shrines and knock them down. If you look at in Jerusalem, if you ever go to Israel and you're in Jerusalem, you will learn that David picked the highest place to build the temple. It was the threshing floor. Why? They would thresh wheat in high places because you would get the wind. And when you take the fork to throw the wheat up, the wind would carry the chaff away and the wheat would fall to the ground. And so that's where he built. So you always see them climbing. They're climbing for a reason. So as they entered, they literally ran into him. Now, when we get to verse 15 through 16, what would you call that? If you're watching a movie, what just happened? It is a flashback. Okay, so just for one second, we flashback and we realize that God had appeared to Samuel already and had said, tomorrow you're going to meet a young man from the tribe of Benjamin. You will anoint him what? What's the word in your Bible? Leader. Does anybody have prince? Okay, so the point is they asked for a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations have. That is a slam because who was their king? God was their king. And God had always appointed a leader who knew his position under God. That's what made David such an amazing king. Because all through the Psalms, when you read David's prayers, he is always addressing God as my king. My king. Oh, king. He knew that God was the ultimate king and he was the prince or leader under God. This is what's going to get Saul in trouble along the years is he forgets his position. And so they're asking for a king and God is saying, I am going to give you a what? A prince, a leader underneath me. And he has a job. 
He is going to free my people from the Philistines. So what does that tell you? Who's already in the land? The Philistines are. And if you're going to free your people from the Philistines, there's already oppression going on. So they have worked their way back in. That makes all the sense in the world as to why the elders would come to Samuel and say, we want a king because they have seen the enemy come in. And not only are the Philistines back and they have garrisons in different strategic parts around the nation of Israel already, they also have the Ammonites who are east of the Jordan River. We find out actually, and I think I wrote it down. Let me look. In 12, 12, chapter 12, verse 12, Samuel literally gives the reason they asked for a king, and that's because they were scared of Nahash. He was king of the Ammonites, and he has come in to conquer Israel. He is east of the Jordan River. Do you know your geography? So if I said that Israel is a narrow strip of land, okay, can y'all hear me for one second? So Israel is a narrow strip of land. Okay, here it is. Over here is the Mediterranean Sea. The other border of Israel is the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. It kind of looks like a hot dog. Okay, so it's this narrow strip. Back here is all of Egypt, and out here is all of Asia. And so you basically have natural borders. Now, at one point, they really had a ton of land to the east of the Jordan River, but the majority of the time, especially under David and Solomon, the majority of the time, you're between the Jordan River, most of the action went on between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. There were two tribes east, though, that were given an inheritance of the land east of the Jordan River, and that was Gad and Reuben. And so what is happening is the Ammonites have come in, King Nahash, and he has begun to conquer. And it says that he has already conquered Gad and Reuben. And what does he do? He gouges out their right eyes. Why? Well, because he is crippling them not to fight back after this because they fought hand-to-hand combat with shields and swords. And what eye did they need? Their right eye. And so he was crippling them. He was shaming them. And in the process, 7,000 men escaped and came over the Jordan River. And all of this is happening. And they're like, oh, my word, the Philistines are back in the land. The Ammonites are coming. We need a leader. And that is the motivation for why they answered that, why they asked that question. So let me ask you, was there a legitimate concern for Samuel to retire? Yes. Is there a time sometimes when you look and it is time to retire? Yes. And boy, isn't that sometimes a painful time? If you look, very few people, very few leaders know how to retire well. They a lot of times wait way too long. And in the midst of them waiting too long because they have aged and it has gone on, what starts to happen? A lot of time, the admin beneath them start to eat each other in the process. The elders are bickering. They're trying to figure out what to do because they see the writing on the wall and they feel like they've got to do something about it. And then before you know it, in all of that, what happens? The enemy creeps its way into the situation and is very damaging and oppressing. And by the time the leader is removed, there is a lot of injury going on the majority of the time. And to be honest, the next leader is pretty much a transitional person because it's going to be hard to lead after that. And it's most of the time not highly successful until what? The next one. Have you ever seen that happen? You see, see there, there are universal truths, I think, throughout all of Scripture. So it says that the moment that Samuel saw Saul, he knew it was him. He absolutely saw this boy, this handsome boy with great stature, and he knew he was the guy. The message says this. He knew that this is the one who will keep my people in check. If you look at that in the ESV and you look it up, it also means to shut their mouth. So in other words, this is the one, this is the one that God is going to give them to shut them up. He is going to give them exactly what they've asked for. And so Samuel says this, hey, I want you to come eat with me. 
You're going to come have dinner with me. Tomorrow I will tell you all that is in your mind. And by the way, the donkeys are found. Okay, thanks for that. What is he saying? He's like, dude, you've come here with this worry on your mind. What you don't know is that you're out looking for donkeys and you're going to come back with a crown. So I want to remove one worry from your brain. This little worry that has brought you here, these donkeys, they've been found. But I want you to come have dinner with me. And when you do, we're going to chat. And I'm going to tell you all that is in your mind. I want so bad to know all that was in his mind. I would love to sit down and understand what that conversation is. But let's have some fun. This is a young man. What do you think are some of the things that are on his mind? He is off. He is seeing the world. He is seeing what is going on in the world. He's talking to the servant. He is meeting a powerful man. Don't you know that young men often think, what am I here to do? What is my purpose? What is going on? What does the future hold? Can you imagine that he sat down with Samuel and really he had the most powerful man in the land. He had his ear. He could ask him about battles he heard about. He could ask him about situations. He could ask him about the enemy. It would be like sitting down with Trump and asking him what is going on behind the curtain, right? And he had the ear and he said, I'm going to tell you all that is in your mind. And then he drops this because at this moment, Israel's future is in your hands. What? Can you imagine? This young man shows up looking for donkeys, happens to run into some girls who happen to tell him to hurry up. He's coming down the street. First person he asks is Samuel. Gets invited to like an inaugural dinner, big time dinner. You're going to come eat with me and be my honored guest. By the way, he's going to get a choice uh, sirloin that has been saved just for him. He is the honored guest. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to answer all your questions. And I'm going to tell you all that is in your mind. Because, son, if you thought donkeys were a problem, I'm telling you right now, all of Israel is looking at you in one moment. <laughs> and he says, I don't know why you're talking to me like that. He's like looking for somebody else because I'm a Benjamite. Like I'm a small town dude. I come from, I mean, really, I come from a small tribe. I don't have any influence. To be honest, I have very little knowledge. It's like some good old boy, all-American boy from Montana shows up in D.C. and sits down and has an important meal, and he's the honored guest, and all of America is looking at you. I mean, this is intense. He had to have so many questions going on. In my notes, I put, what a day. And then after sleeping in the breeze-cooled roof, on the breeze-cooled roof of Samuel, the next morning he goes to leave. And Samuel goes out with him and says, hey, send your servant on ahead. And guess what happens? He anoints him as king. We're talking about in a matter of two days. He is out for the, probably for the first time on his own, on an adventure, shows up, meets the most powerful man, has an honorable dinner. Everybody is looking at you, having conversations, meeting people he never thought. The next day he goes to leave and this man, Samuel, anoints him as the next king of Israel. You have to let that sink in. I hope you think about that on the way because here's the thing. He says, and now that you leave, you're going to experience three signs that confirm what just happened. Why? If that happened to you and you were walking away from it, what would you be thinking? Like, what? was I smoking crack? Was this a dream? What just happened? And you would start to doubt like, no. This cannot be real. Is this a joke? But yet he tells you three specific things to look for. Um, the three things, because the servant is with him this whole way home. Yeah. And he's going to see what three things. Well, number one, he says, you're going to show up at Rachel's tomb. So a specific place. And there are going to be two men there that are going to come up to you and basically say, the donkeys you have been looking for are found. Now, Samuel has told him that, but Samuel's told him a lot. 
All right. So he needs to hear it. He's like, if you want confirmation about that, you're going to show up. By the time you get to Rachel's tomb, two men are going to walk up to you and they're going to confirm what I have told you, the simple things I have told you that, hey, the donkeys have been found and your dad is worried out of his mind. Okay. As you keep going. So that's one confirmation. So he's like, then he says, then you're going to arrive at your Bible might say the tabernacle. Or the oak of Tabor, tabernacle means provision, okay, or God's providence. And he says, and when you get there, you're going to run into three men who are going up to worship, and they're going to have three young goats, three sacks of bread, and a jug of wine. When you see them, they are going to come up to you and say hello, and then they're going to give you two loaves of bread. Interesting that the area means provision and God is going to give him provision. I am the provider. All right. And then he says, so the third one is you're going to end up at Gibeah. Now this is where he's from. So he's coming into his hometown and you're going to find at a Philistine garrison. What does that say? He knows the oppression of the Philistines in the land. He knows their presence. Okay. He knows they're there. He says, when you see that, you're going to run into a bunch of prophets coming down from a shrine playing music. Now, this is really interesting because this is one of the first times we hear about a school or a group of prophets. In the Old Testament, the only two other people that were called prophets are Abraham and Moses. And then Samuel is called a prophet. And once we hit Samuel, this is very important. This is the big picture stuff that people miss. Once you get to Samuel, you start seeing Samuel train schools of prophets. Why is that important? Well, think about it. We're about to have a monarchy. So we have almost like these branches of government. So we have the priests. What are they in charge of? God's laws, right? All the sacrifice offerings. You're going to have the king who's going to be in charge of politics, of defense and all that stuff, building a kingdom. When you have those two things, you need a third branch. And what are their, what's their job? They're going to keep everybody honest because they're going to show up. They're going to start being needed because they're going to start showing up to kings along the way and to different people because we're going to have this monarchy going on and they're going to look and say, uh, thus saith the Lord. Remember? Remember the prophet Nathan comes into David and says what? You the man. He calls him out. So they have a job. There's some checks and balances going on. And so you see this movement going on with prophets. You see Saul show up and he says, you're going to see the school of prophet coming down. They're going to be prophesying, worshiping. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you too are going to prophesy and worship. Matter of fact, you're going to be changed. You're going to be a new man. So can you imagine so he comes to the first one. The donkeys have been found. Your dad's worried to death. He comes to the second one. These random guys are going up to worship the Lord and they provide. And then he comes and he runs into these prophets. And before you know it, he too is like, who am I that the highest king would welcome? And there is a worship service and he is worshiping and he is praising and they are doing all kinds of stuff. And he is in basically his hometown and people are watching this and they are like, what is going on? What the heck happened to the son of Kish? He done got religion. Like, is he among the prophets? What happened? Which tells you what? That was not the norm. He was changed. Something got, they were like, what in the world is going on? And you have all of these events that are giving credit to what Samuel has told him. I just think it's hilarious. I cannot imagine what the people are saying. What has come over this son of Kish? He goes, so he runs into, he runs into his uncle, which I think is funny. So by the time he gets home, the uncle runs out. Why do you think the uncle runs out? He is intercepting him because what has been going on at home? His dad is outside his mind. He didn't care about the donkeys. He wants to know where his kid is. Okay. So the uncle is the first one that greets him. And what does he say? What's he say in everyday language? Where in this world? 
have you been? What is wrong with you? Exactly. Do you even know? Your dad is out of his mind. And he goes, um, well, you know, we looked all over for donkeys. We were looking and we couldn't find them. And instead we ran into Sam. Say what? Did you catch that? He didn't say another word about the donkeys the minute he said the word what? Samuel. We ran into Samuel. And the minute he says that, he goes, dude, every word, give it to me right now. Tell me every word. You tell me what Samuel said to you. I started thinking about that. What do we know about that? Well, we know that Saul may not have known Samuel, but who did? The uncle. He knew Samuel. He wanted to know every single word Samuel said because he knew the words of Samuel were what? Powerful. And they were from God and they were true. And what else do you think, if you really are putting yourself in that story, what is going on politically in the land? What is Samuel doing? He's looking for a king. And now all of a sudden you hear that this most powerful man, this old man in the land, who has been asked for a king, has sat down with your nephew, who's been out looking for donkeys, and has like had this whole conversation. I mean, can you imagine? Where have you been? Oh man, you'd never believe it. I'm telling you what, we went in place, ran to these chicks. I saw Samuel immediately. We knew him before I knew it. I was swept up in this big banquet. I was the honored guest. He had a filet set aside for me. And then I spent the night with him. We had this whole conversation. You wouldn't believe it. He anointed my head. I mean, did the servant not see the oil on his hair when they finally met up and the oil on the clothes? And it just so happens that randomly, boom, we ran into these people. The donkeys have been found. Boom, here, have two loaves of bread. And who am I that the high? Oh, nothing, nothing. We were looking for donkeys. That's it. <laughs> he gave him no details whatsoever. Typical young boy. What happened? Nothing. How was your day? Good. Who was at school? Same. Anything fun happen? No. I mean, honestly, but here's the thing. I'm being funny, but what? Why did he not share? How do you even share that? I'm not sure he even knew how to process that himself. How do you even process what just happened to you? I mean, come on. It's not like he trained for the draft and then got drafted. He showed up looking for donkeys and got drafted. His world got changed in a moment. Do you honestly think he's ready for questions? Do you think he's ready for lectures or warnings? And do you not find it interesting that in this entire situation, his dad is not present? He's alone. He's with the servant. That's when it happens. It wasn't up to the dad. It wasn't the opinion of the dad. What would the dad have done? Influence? I can look at this from a sports event because that's what our family was like. I mean, if Zach went on any kind of visit with any important people, which he went on a ton, I would say, what happened? Well, what were they like? Well, what did he say to you? Well, does he think you're awesome? Well, did they see your film? Well, what are they going to offer? Well, what do the apartments look like that you're going to live? Well, what classes were you going to take? And, you know, I mean, he wasn't ready to talk about it. And then what would Doug do? Well, I don't know. We better analyze this. We better see if this is the good fit for you and this whole thing. I mean, the dad was nowhere to be found and he kept it to himself. And then can you imagine what happened when the word went out from Samuel? He speaks. The entire nation is to assemble at Mizpah. Put yourself in the nation of Israel. The word has gone out. How would you feel? What is the atmosphere? What is the hub in the air? What's going on? What are they talking about? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. He's picked a king. He's picked a king. This is it. We're being called together as a nation. We're going to get a king. We're going to find out who this is. I am wondering, what was Saul thinking? Oh my goodness. And I wonder, what was the servant thinking? I wonder, were there conversations on the way back? How could there not be? How could he not see the oil? This wasn't a little bit of oil. When they anointed your head as king, it was some oil. 
all right? And so how did he not see that? How did he see all the signs and not know that something funky was going on? How did Saul not spill anything? How did he not say anything to the servant? Had he sworn him to secrecy? Like you said, do not say a word. I don't know, but what was that servant thinking when everybody got called to, what was the uncle thinking? And then they all get there. And this is the beauty of it because in, in the wilderness, this is how God organized the people by tribe. I have five minutes. By tribe, 12 tribes of Israel. So anytime God was going to point someone out, do you know what the Urim and the Thummim are? Okay. It's like you got to picture dice and they were kept in a pocket in the epid of the high priest. And so what they would do is it was the ability you would ask God a yes or no answer and they would roll the dice and it would show you yes or no. That's how God would, would speak and pick things. So you would say this tribe or this tribe and you would know this tribe or this. And so you would work it out. So basically they work through until the tribe was picked and it was the tribe of Benjamin. Ooh. And then you would pick the clan and the family, and then in the family, the name. Put yourself in that day. What was that like? And they're like, what? And the uncle's like, oh, yeah? I'm just looking for donkeys? Are you kidding me? What just happened? And they all turn around, and guess what? He's not there. Nobody can find him. I can understand it. He's hiding in the baggage. Are you kidding me? This is a small town, rural, all-American kid who is being thrust into the limelight in a moment. All eyes would be on him and literally the entire fate of the nation is on him. He hasn't been trained for this. He doesn't know what he is doing. I'd be hiding in the baggage too. Can you imagine this? And God tells Samuel where he is. And they take him and they put him up on the stage for everybody to see. I don't even know if he's ever seen that amount of people in one place. I remember the first time I sang a solo as a little girl. I was in a Sunday school class in front of 24 people and I stood on Coke boxes so they could see my head over the podium. Okay, that's how you start. Oh no, that's not how Saul started. He was thrust into the public eye in a moment. Should we have compassion on a young Saul, on a young man who steps into this role to be the king of Israel? And then they say, long live the king. Where do they get that? Probably from other nations, but long live the king. And what I can't help but think is, oh, you say that now. You wait till you get some of these jokers. You may be yelling, long live the king, but you're hoping he doesn't live long. Because if you think the sons of Eli were bad, and if you think the sons of Samuel were bad, wait till you get a load of the monarchy kids. And those you can't get rid of because it is royal blood. And so what we're going to do next week, I have started teaching you about who Saul is. We are going to look at his first amazing victory. We're going to look at his uh, coronation. It was a big event. We are going to look at a chapter that drives me nuts, which is chapter 13. And I, so read it. I am going to analyze that chapter for you to death. Okay. Because I believe personally, this is my own personal belief that chapter 13 is a pivotal, pivotal chapter in the character of Saul and I think it influenced him in a negative way for the rest of his life. And it started him in a spin he could not get out of. And the biggest thing I want us to get out of this, because we're going to go into David. The biggest thing I want to get out of this is we need to stop looking at these narratives like old school preachers used to preach where the bad guy was all bad. We just see it black and white. This is the bad one. This is the good one. They made a bad choice. They made all good choices. That's not human. That is not a human being. What they did is when they wrote about the heroes, they wrote it in such a way that they made the heroes look perfect. 
and they made the villains look all bad. That's not true. We're going to look at them because I'm going to tell you there's both in us. We have the potential for both because that's the truth of humanity. I can see myself in Saul. I can see my, his mistakes. I can see how he spins out. I can see all that. I can see his choices. And I can also see some of the things about Samuel. I can see where he went wrong, what he did great. I can see David because the fact is we are human beings and we have both hero and villain inside of us. And the truth is the only true hero in these pages is God. That's the truth. So I hope that today has been fun for you because now you're going to read the chapters and you're going to slow down and you're actually going to study before you get here and you're going to look at chapter 13 and you're going to be thinking, what in the world is going on? And I love it. Mary Landreth has been reading ahead. She sends me texts. I don't even know what is happening. This is confusing me. I am trying to figure out why did this happen? Why did that happen? And it's so awesome because you're already hungry. And what happens is when you leave this place, you start to learn to read the Bible a little different and the narrative keeps going in your mind all week long and you read it. And guess what that is? Questions are good because you're meditating. You're meditating on the scripture and God is speaking to you that entire time. It's beautiful. So I hope you've caught the bug tonight. All right, let's pray and then we'll hang out. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Your word is amazing. Oh, your word is amazing. I thank you that you've written down these testimonies for us because, Lord, I can just see me all in the pages of these scriptures. Oh, Lord, how I've messed up. Uh, Lord, how I've been insecure, how I've been arrogant, how I have tried to control, to maneuver things because I'm so smart and I can understand what should be done. I can see it coming. And uh, I push my way and I give you ideas like you don't have any yourself. And Lord, there's just so many things that we can see um, in our humanity that we do. And so God, I pray that as we see that, we're just reminded like them, they have forgotten whom it is they serve. You're not taken by surprise. You've got this. You're in control. You will raise up leaders. If we walk through hard times, you will be there. And the beautiful thing is, if we allow you, you will teach us through those hard times and you will mature us and you will then use us in the lives of others. We'll receive the glory. You're an amazing God and you deserve our worship. And so, Lord, we lift you up tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.